Hello listeners and welcome back. This episode is specifically for my Sociology 4600 class. It's a course on globalization and throughout the semester we've been talking about different theories and paradigms that concern globalization. At this part in the course, we are reading the work of Leanne Simpson, who's an Anishinaabe scholar, writer, artist, and musician. We're reading her book, As We Have Always Done, which was published in 2017. You might also be familiar with Simpson's work from her 2011 book, Dancing on Our Turtle's Back. Students are currently reading the introduction through to chapter five of As We Have Always Done, and I'm going to spend some time talking about uh, what Simpson discusses and unpacks uh, in those chapters, and I'll be linking this to some notes on Moodle that I posted, along with some YouTube clips and other media to add a bit more visual context. Stay tuned. So before diving into Leanne Simpson's work, I'd like to start by helping to create some connections across our materials and conversations so far in terms of how we've been thinking about globalization in this course. Throughout the course so far, we've considered different theories, ones that are perhaps better than others. Uh, So theories about the nature of globalization. Does it lead to this clash of cultures, civilizations, or religions, as Huntington argued? Uh, Probably not. Does it make us all the same beneath the totalizing effects of American corporatization and capitalism? Maybe, but that suggests globalization only really operates in one way. Finally, and our third option that we've maybe spent the most time exploring is, does it lead to more fluid mixtures, melanges or hybrids that have been ongoing for a time immemorial? Pieters, as we know, explores each option in his textbook, Globalization and Cultural Melange. And he lands perhaps most strongly on this idea of hybridity theory to make his claim that culture has and will inevitably always change, not just in one direction in terms of the McDonaldization paradigm or America imposing itself on the rest of the world, but rather hybridity theory suggests that globalization and culture change always has and always will create change in a multitude of flows and directions and results in more complicated uh, mixtures or melanges, more complicated hybridities uh, back and forth, east to west, west to east, north to south, and south to north. Another set of questions that we've explored in the course so far concerns the nature of globalization and power. While questions of power clearly arise in the aforementioned theories, it may be useful to point out that Pieters pays some attention to inequality, but ultimately works to decenter Western power and imperialism by showing how the East influences and has always influenced the West and how the South influences the North, for example. Perenias, the other text that we've been reading for the course, perhaps takes a harder stance 
on the uneven and unequal nature of contemporary globalization. By highlighting the limited choices that Filipinas uh, face and their plights as overseas workers, including their labor as nannies, housekeepers, and hostesses. We've heard the terms the West and the East used pretty constantly throughout the course, especially in Pieter's textbook. We've heard it used in the context of hybridity theory and those flows that sort of oscillate back and forth in terms of influence and culture change. But let's complicate this a bit more now, and in doing so also center indigenous perspectives on the world, culture, and change over time. Let's work to learn and, and put into practice a decolonizing perspective of globalization and spend time with indigenous theory and knowledge. In speaking about the West, we should not conflate this context and its global interactions and influences as solely those of colonizers or capitalists. Long before North America was part and parcel of the West, it was called Turtle Island, and many indigenous nations and languages, albeit with slight differentiation in the, in the wording based on indigenous and local languages. In the Moodle notes that I've posted for my students, there's a link to the Ojibwe creation story, which helps to explain part of how the name or the term Turtle Island came to be. So go to those notes and click on that YouTube link to see the story. So now I'm going to dive into Simpsons as we have always done uh, with you. Before I do that, I'll mention that importantly, I am not an indigenous person. I am a settler of British and Italian ancestry primarily. And I too, just like you, I'm also still in the process of learning and decolonizing my own thinking and living and work. And so it's a bit odd for me to sit here and try to reinterpret uh, what Simpson's saying for you. I think that it's important for us to go back and first and foremost read the perspectives and listen to the perspectives directly of and from Indigenous people. So I will hopefully try to amplify what it is that she's saying and guide you back to the text for the wisdom that she shares there. Again, I am too also learning and striving to better understand, but of course recognize the limits to my ability to understand. So let's think through Simpson's work together. Simpson is Nishnabe, which means the people, and refers to indigenous nations of the Ottawa, the Ojibwe, the Potawatomi, uh, the Cree and Algonquin peoples. Leanne Simpson is a scholar, writer, filmmaker, and artist, and she writes in the first several chapters of As We Have Always Done about her life, including her motherhood, her academics, and of course her struggle in academia, her time with elders, and her time learning from and writing about Indigenous knowledge. On our Moodle notes, I've linked uh, Simpson's website 
It's leannesimpson.ca. It's really beautifully done with lots of information about her and her work. So be sure to check that out. There's also a beautiful introduction um, by Leanne Simpson available on YouTube. It's just a couple of minutes long, and I've linked that on our Moodle notes as well. So take a few minutes and watch that YouTube video. Simpson speaks in her book with a glimpse into the kinds of changes she's witnessed to her people's lands, reflecting on what her ancestors might have known and experienced she states on page two that I hadn't known previously that I could barely even imagine the worlds that had already been lost. Changes to the land caused by settler colonialism barred her knowledge of what existed before, and it was only through elders that she was able to learn to locate, for example, former villages, hunting grounds, savannas and prairies. By learning about the past, Simpson also reflects on Anishinaabe ways of looking to the future. She says on page three that our knowledge system, the education system, the economic system, and the political system of the Mishisagig Anishinaabe were designated to promote more life. Our way of living was designed to generate life, not just human life, but the life of all living things. She goes on to say that in the process, people practiced freedom, engaged in self-determination, and learned to live in relation to one another. So a question that I posed for you to think through is, what does nationhood mean to Simpson? How is this localized or indigenized in ways that refuse the nation state? Is there a larger dimension to this sense of nationhood that perhaps leads to some kind of global dimension or international dimension? So Simpson goes on to explain how 200 years of forced assimilation, dispossession, and ongoing trauma have left the Mishi Sagig Nishinaabe with nearly no land at all. Because of this, there is, she argues, an urgent need for Indigenous resurgence, a reclamation of land and territory of Nishinaabe traditions and citizenship, within Indigenous nationhood. And so this is different from Canadian nationhood or the Canadian nation state. Rather, this is older Indigenous nationhood. So another question that I have for you to think through is that Simpson argues that Anishinaabe thought and knowledge is understood, embodied, and practiced in ways that are quite distinct from conventional university learning. So in the beginning of the book, she's talking about her own struggle in sort of conventional settler colonial uh, academics. So what are the contents and characteristics of Anishinaabe knowledge? Do you think that the knowledge shared and learned between Simpson and Dr. Dribben, who she talks about in the book, could be described as a kind of hybrid knowledge or how would you think about it in terms of reflecting different kinds of negotiation or exchange in the collaboration of maybe two different worldviews, two different sets of knowledges, 
and really uh, her desire and the need to center indigenous ways of knowing and indigenous practices. So in terms of decolonizing theories and methods, I'd like for you, uh, my students, to take a moment and explore this concept or idea of grounded normativity that's really important in Simpson's work and in her assertion of sort of indigenous everyday life and theorizing around life itself. In the Moodle notes, I've offered you space and suggested that you could explore this term grounded normativity and write a definition using Simpson's work uh, in your own words. Simpson reflects on her experiences of learning using this idea of grounded normativity. She speaks firstly of her work with Professor Paul Dribben, an anthropologist at Lakehead University. Their collaborative work on the effects on aboriginals from the Great Lakes environment which uh, the acronym is EAGLE. This project uh, in collaboration or with the Assembly of First Nations was aimed at creating a land use atlas. Although suspicious of Dr. Dribben at first, Simpson began to trust him, she explains, and she trusted his efforts and aims through what she seems to perceive as a kind of mutually respectful relationship between him, the Anishinaabe communities, and the elders. With Dr. Jibbin and the elders of Long Lake Number 58, Simpson insisted on doing research and learning differently from what has been conventionally done in ivory tower academics. So in thinking about this, I have a third question for you to ponder and consider. If globalization is marked by the interconnectedness of our world, what does marunage or marinage suggest about other processes that are occurring simultaneously? What might Simpson's use of marunage or marinage suggest about how the Anishinaabe experienced the world and culture? I found Simpson's discussion of marinage particularly interesting to think with in relation to other theories and examples that we've explored in class around globalization in globalization, both past and present. As Simpson states, quoting from Neil Roberts, marinage is, quote, a group of persons isolating themselves from a surrounding society in order to create a fully autonomous community. Marinage is a multidimensional con constant act of flight that involves what I ascertain to be four interrelated pillars distance, movement, property, and purpose. And so she talks about this specifically on page 17 and 18 of As We Have Always Done. Thinking about this more, perhaps visit those four pillars and write a few notes to yourself about what each one consists of. And think about, too, what does it mean to form a sort of isolated group of persons that distinguish themselves as separate or apart from surrounding society in order to become fully autonomous? 
this seems uh, maybe perhaps contradictory to the ways in which we've been exploring globalization so far in terms of hybridity and this constant interaction and relationality that has always existed among people. But if marinage seems like an important practice in terms of becoming autonomous and maybe sovereign or self-determining for Indigenous people, uh, what does this mean about our contemporary world and about globalization when instead of turning outward, maybe some people choose instead to turn inward as an act of resistance or resurgence? Um, inspired through perhaps knowledge of elders and ancestors and of each other as a kind of way to maybe shield out the ongoing effects of colonization and imperialism and uh, neo-colonialism as well. Shortly after discussing Maranage, Simpson considers how important living in connection to the land is since it is a vital uh, component of Indigenous life ways. She also says that each engagement, interaction, or influence changes the world, right? So every time something or someone interacts, it creates a ripple of change, uh, usually small but also big. She then references the Seven Fires creation story to talk about these kind of interactional um, uh, exchanges. And I've linked a video on your Moodle notes so that you can see a story about, or see the story about the seven fires. She explains the seven fires, so Simpson explains on page 21, as an epic way that the original knowledge coded and transmitted through complex networks says that everything we need to know about everything in the world is contained within indigenous bodies that these same indigenous bodies exist as networked vessels or constellations across time and space, intimately connected to a universe of nations and beings. So I'll read that again. The Seven Fires creation story is an epic way that the original knowledge coded and transmitted through complex networks says that everything we need to know about everything in the world is contained within indigenous bodies, and that these same indigenous bodies exist as networked vessels or constellations across time and space, intimately connected to a universe of nations and beings. So again, that's on page 21. Perhaps this is another way to think about hybridity as being grounded in the land. Maybe hybridity is embedded in indigenous knowledge and not just in human relations or human history, but arguably in all relations, both human and non-human. So this decenters uh, what we might think of as our anthropocentric way of viewing the world primarily as centering around or revolving around humans. Instead, I think indigenous knowledge and the particular knowledge that Simpson is sharing with us suggests that knowledge about our world and history of our world and relations that have always constituted our world aren't just about human interaction but are of course about human and non-human interaction and life and history. Note that in chapter 2 Simpson talks more about indigenous ways of knowing. On page 31 she also discusses citational politics 
and the importance of engaging with Indigenous scholars and other marginalized scholars whose voices, contributions, and knowledges have been neglected or maybe even actively suppressed in the academy. Such considerations not only reflect an active inclusion of those otherwise oppressed and marginalized, but also a refusal to continuously center whiteness, colonial domination, heteropatriarchy, and academic conventions. Simpson argues that part of her method of knowing and writing comes from her understanding of Quay. Quay, she says, as a method is about refusal. So she talks about this on page 33, and then again on page 43. So I have some questions for you around this. What is Quay? And how exactly is it a method? How does it facilitate refusal of particular oppressions? So visiting that again around page 33 and 43 and the spaces in between, see if you can think about uh, what is it and how is it a method to help facilitate a kind of refusal. One thing to consider in your own work uh, is how you engage in citational politics. Simpson asks questions listed on page 63 of herself when considering theories to engage with. In addition to those, consider the following for yourself. How do you, sorry, who do you cite the most? Why do you think this is the case? In your other classes and with your professors, do they avidly encourage you to read diverse bodies of work and theories, diverse scholars? Do you avidly seek out such work in your own writing, for example, your final essays? What might it mean for you to write with Indigenous theory, as Simpson points out on page 37? And how might it change your approach in this class if you were to look for theories or perspectives uh, beyond those that are perhaps the most dominant or cited or the ones that are the most vocal or centered in discussions around globalization. Or in another class, how might you engage more in the practice of more inclusive and diverse uh, inclusion of theory and Indigenous scholarship, scholarship from perspectives that have otherwise been marginalized. How might this change the way that you write and think? Moving on to Indigenous internationalism, and beginning around page 55, Simpson explores Nishnabe internationalism and Indigenous internationalism. I see these reflecting indigenous theories of what we have otherwise been referring to as globalization. Paralleling Pieter's approach to the long durée of globalization, or that long in-depth historical accounting of globalization and culture change, Simpson perhaps makes an even greater case for the ways that internationalism has always been practiced and present in the minds and lives of the Anishinaabe. Take a moment and reread the first few pages of chapter four in As We Have Always Done. 
After you do that, generate a definition for Indigenous internationalism using your own words. I've made space for you on our Moodle notes to do that. And perhaps, along with your own uh, definition and words, draw in and include a few important words or terms used by Simpson herself as she explains this concept. Simpson talks about Nanabush, who you heard about earlier in the Ojibwe Turtle Island story. And Nanabush is an important spirit and figure in Anishinaabe cosmology. Simpson explains the stories that detail his journeys around the world multiple times, right? He traverses the world multiple times. With this sense of world travel and collective consciousness from the very start, of Anishinaabe creation, Simpson says on page 56 that internationalism has always been a part of our intellectual practices. So I've posted a, a set of questions for you on Moodle around thinking about international, Indigenous internationalism. So take a look at those questions and think about how you might want to respond. So those questions are, how are the specific values and characteristics embedded within Indigenous internationalism, sort of specific to Indigenous internationalism, rather than maybe other theories of globalization that we've been discussing? How does Indigenous internationalism compare to these other theories of globalization that we've explored so far? What does Simpson's perspective on this Indigenous internationalism add to our understanding of globalization, both past and present? And what are the limits and possibilities that Simpson identifies when considering indigenous international learning and social movements and maybe liberation? Finally, why is indigenous internationalism potentially an important part of creating alternative futures? I've also added one more question just to kind of put this into the context of what's happening right now. Maybe connecting Simpson's discussion to our contemporary world, what kinds of Indigenous concerns and responses are you seeing maybe through uh, popular media or Indigenous media to the COVID-19 pandemic? And so again, as we're sort of seeing ourselves as part of this global collective in fighting the pandemic, what do you think are Indigenous concerns and responses to this? In thinking more about Indigenous internationalism, I have on my Moodle notes for you two case studies to further explore and consider regarding uh, uh, local Indigenous communities, but also interconnectedness across communities and nations, and maybe even globally. So the first case concerns the Idle No More movement. Go to our Moodle notes and take a look at the Idle No More website, starting with the story page. After that, I have a couple of CBC News articles about Idle No More events, and I have also a link to a Facebook page for Idle No More New Zealand, seeing how, for example, concerns around uh, uh, concerns of Indigenous people uh, on Turtle Island maybe link also with the concerns of Indigenous people elsewhere in the world. Finally, reflect on Simpson's statement 
that movements are, quote, not a hashtag or a sticker or a t-shirt or a selfie or anything white liberals think is important. It isn't recognition, she says, it's struggle. And that quote comes from page 67. How do you think social media may be hindering or helpful in the case of these social movements like Idle No More? The second case concerns Wasutin and Wasutin's strong movement, so the uh, resistance to the pipeline, for example, in Wasutin territory. First, on our Moodle notes, I have a link for you to watch a video about uh, what happened and what is continuing to happen in Wasutin territory. You can then check out uh, larger organizations that center Indigenous concerns around environmental issues. So there's the Indigenous Environmental Network and the International Support for Wasutin Facebook page. There's also an organization called Oil Change International, which fights extractivism uh, on Indigenous territories, as well as Wasutin leaders uh, at United Nations Forum. I've offered you a link to that to see what the Wasutin leaders and chiefs have said to the UN. Finally, consider... Uh, how what is happening in Wasutin territory is a concern for all Indigenous peoples, and maybe consider why Indigenous internationalism might be beneficial to better Indigenous uh, presents and futures. So in closing, speaking specifically about alternatives to capitalism as a driving force behind extractivism, Simpson argues, and this is a quote from page 76, that Anishinaabe people and our society are the alternative. We lived without capitalism for centuries, she says. If the worst parts of globalization are extractivism, capitalism, neoliberalism, growing inequality, even ongoing uh, colonialism and neocolonialism, what alternatives does Nishnabe grounded normativity offer as an alternative? How might indigenous theories of life, relations, and the globe, the world, uh, shed light on different possibilities for us all in this rapidly changing world. So again, you can revisit these notes, you can check out the clips and the websites that I've linked on the Moodle notes, as well as I've written out the reflection questions for you on the Moodle notes too. Make sure that you go on to Moodle, specifically our discussion forum, to engage with your colleagues, uh, the other students in the class, on my questions that specifically concern Indigenous internationalism. Again, I think it's really important to center Indigenous perspectives on what we've otherwise been calling globalization to really think through uh, what it means to live in local community but also live in connection um, uh, with other Indigenous peoples in other parts of the world too. So spend some time there and let me know if you have any questions. I will also be checking on the forum in my email so you can contact me uh, through email or whatever way is easiest for you. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.